Morning, everybody. Great to be with you again today. I got to tell you, six hours into preparing this sermon, exactly when, Monday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I realized that there could be at least three different groups of people listening to what I'm about to say, who's, who could be impacted really in a, in a life-changing way. And as I thought of that, in, the, in that moment, God had my attention in a pretty major way because I, I realized the stakes are really very high with what we're going to talk about this morning. So it's possible that, that you've come here today and you're struggling with areas of your life that you know need to change. And it could be, it could be habits, it could be addictions, it could be moral choices you're making that are not good, it could be emotions that are, are harmful to you and, and, and everybody around you. It could be greed, it could be control issues, it could be fear, it could be, it could be self-centeredness, it could be arrogance. I mean, the list could go on, it, things we could think about. You know, there are things you do in private, things you do behind closed doors. Nobody knows, but you're ashamed of everyone. You've got all this junk in your life, and you, you don't like any of it, but you, you can't seem to get past it. You're, you're not able to deal with it. It, it just stays with you. It, it could be one thing. It could be many things, but you know it's wrong, and it's pulling you down. Or it's possible you're here today, and you'd say you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but truth be known, your faith in Christ hasn't made all that much of a difference in your life. And, and what's more, you don't really care. You, you, you like the way you are, what you're doing, and, and, and you're not willing, you're not wanting to change a thing. Or it's possible that it's not so much that there's junk in your life you can't get rid of. It's that your spiritual walk has become become a bit boring. It's, it's lacking challenge, and you have this nagging sense within yourself that, that you're not living up to God's potential for your life. Now, I've got to tell you, I've been there. I've been at all three at some point in my own life, and, and so I would say if, if, any, if in any way you can relate to, to one of these three possibilities, I believe you're going to see that the sixth chapter of Romans is written for you. It's got you in mind. Because, here's why. In it, the Spirit of God, speaking through Paul, shows us how it's possible for any, every, every one of us to get rid of any kind of junk that we've got in our life that we don't want. Or, and if, if, if we like our junk, uh, it, it will help us show us why we should want to get rid of that junk. And if we plateaued spiritually, how, how, we, how it's possible that we can get out of the rut that we're in. I, the thing I realized, and as I got into this six chapters, this is a pivotal chapter. It's a, a pivotal chapter in the book of Romans. It's a, it's a pivotal chapter for all of, our, all of our lives because what it shows us and what I'd like us to see today is that it all comes down to living out your identity in Jesus Christ, living out your identity so that you're not selling yourself short, but you're maxing out God's potential for your life. So if, if you're taking notes, if you're writing things down this morning, this is, these are the first three things I'd, I'd encourage you to write, write down. I'm just going to leave it up here for a minute. 
so you got time to write it. You want, you, I'm, I'm hoping you'll leave this place today with this in mind. To live out my identity in Christ, live out my identity in Christ, don't sell myself short, and max out God's potential for my life. Those three. Live out my identity in Christ, don't sell myself short, and live out God's potential for my life. Now, Paul, spe Paul speaks to this by way of two questions. Two questions he anticipated in response to what he wrote in, in the first five chapters, where he, he laid out a message that's unique to all religions in our world. The truth that a right relationship with God, and I just love to think of it this way, that friendship with God and eternal life is received. It's, it, it's not achieved. It's not something that we earn. It's a, it's a gift that, that's offered to every single one of us on the basis of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul unwraps this amazing truth of God's grace, leading him to the point of declaring at the end of the fifth chapter that, that God's grace is so great that, that there, there isn't a person whose sin is too great to receive that grace, God's grace, God's forgiveness. And he makes this incredible statement at the end of the chapter in verse 20 and verse 21, chapter 5. He said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that amazing statement. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. All the more. Paul writes about this. He writes about God's grace. And then anticipating what someone might ask in response, he, he asks their questions and he answers both questions. The first question given to us in verse 1 in chapter 6 where somebody might have said, well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then the second question given in verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Two different questions, really asking the same thing but worded differently, and both missing what God's grace means for all of us, and it's a huge miss. And, and Paul shows us why in this chapter. He, he shows us that far from God's grace motivating any one of us to abuse what's been given to us, where, where we'd say to ourselves, oh great, now, now I can sin all, all I want. Instead of that, it should inspire us to love God, obey God, to not in any way sell ourselves short where we're we're minimizing the transforming power of God's grace in our lives, but instead that we would, we would maximize what God can do in us and through us, which all comes down to knowing and living out your identity in Christ. Your identity of being one with Christ, united with Christ, where, where you're saying to yourself, God, I am so grateful for your grace in my life. I want to be like Christ, and like Christ, I want to live for you. I want to bring glory to you. And so what this sixth chapter is all about, it, it's about freedom. It's, it's about living in this perfect freedom that God gives to each one of us. So let's begin. Verse 1. Again, the question Paul asks, 
He said, what should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he answers the question. He said, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? What Paul is really saying is, is this how God's grace should impact us? So that that we would use it as an excuse to sin more? He said, no way. The the very opposite has made it possible for us to die to sin. So why would we want to sin? And then knowing what baptism meant for every person who asked this question, He reminds them of their own baptism. So he he writes this in verse 3 and 4. He said, don't you know that that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into deaths in, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is not to miss everybody. Now, everything about baptism is loaded with spiritual truth. And, 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 and so when we're baptized, when, when we're doing that, what we're really saying to everybody is, as I go under the water, I'm declaring my faith in Christ's death for my sin. I'm declaring my commitment to die to sin in my own life. And coming out of the water, I'm declaring my faith in Christ's resurrection, making it possible for me to live as an eternal child of God. That's why baptism is such a big deal, and that's why every one of us should be baptized as followers of Christ. And what's key for us to understand is what Paul emphasizes in verse 5. Verses, verse 5 is like the key verse in this chapter. And Paul said this. He said, if we, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. A powerful statement with two life-changing implications. And, and the key word to understand in that verse is, is, is the word united. It's a word that would have been used by a gardener or a vineyard owner, and what it means is to be grafted in. And that's exactly the right word for Paul to use because if you take a branch and you graft it into a vine, it becomes part of that vine. It, it's a, everything, everything that's true of the vine becomes true of the branch. Which is exactly what happens to each one of us when we believe and we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. You're grafted into Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that you're grafted into him in his death and you're grafted into him in his resurrection. And in the sixth chapter, Paul shows us that this means two things for us and they are absolutely amazing. So let's look at each one. First of all, we're done with sin. We're done with sin. So Paul writes this in verse 6 and 7. He said, for we know... We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died 
has been freed from sin. Paul's saying this, it's like you put your old sinful self on the cross with Christ and that old self died. And this means that sin's no longer your master. It's no longer the reigning principle in your life. Sin sin no longer defines you. It's no longer who you are, all because of God's grace. So, the idea of God's grace encouraging us to sin is the very opposite of what it does. It's what it does do is it, it makes it possible for you and me to actually be free of sin in our life. It, it makes it possible for us to experience that perfect freedom that God wants for each one of us. Now, that's what's true. Okay, that's what's true. But listen to this, all right? It's understanding this truth. Okay, it's understanding it. It's understanding what it really means in our lives that makes all the difference. Eh? Let me illustrate. Let me ask you a question. Any, anybody here ever work for a really mean boss? Anybody? Just feel free to raise your hand. You know? I mean, a really, really mean, okay, like defines what it means to be mean. Mean to the core. Uh, anger issues. Verbally abusive, arrogant, manipulative. I mean, that person made your life miserable when you were working for him. You know, I bet, you, I bet you're remembering, thinking of a name right now, right? All right? I worked for a guy like this in Madison, Wisconsin, the summer after my first year in college. It was a construction job where I drove a Caterpillar and a gravel truck. And I got to tell you, this guy was absolutely irrational, okay? He, he was angry at everybody about 90% of the time. And, I mean, his expectations were absolutely crazy, and anything you did wasn't good enough. I, all summer long, you wondered if, if, you'd lose the, if you'd lose your job. I mean, every day, I'd go, I wonder if I'm going to lose my job today. It was kind of what I was living with. And, and back in 1970, I don't know what was going on, but jobs were hard to find. And I needed the money. <laughs> I really needed it. And so that was not a job that I could quit no matter how bad it got. And this guy, he knew it. He, he knew he had me exactly where he wanted me. He, he knew that he could run over me and I'd take it. He, he knew that I wouldn't quit. It was like I was his slave. Now, 1970 is a long time ago. Long time ago. I, I've been free of this guy for 44 years now. 44 years. But let's just say I'm visiting my brother, who still lives in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and we go golfing together. And, and we do this on the golf course that's owned by the same construction company that I worked for that summer. And it, it was back then. In fact, that's how I started the job, was working on the golf course, and then they put me on a caterpillar. And let's say that Howard's still living. And yeah, I remember his name, okay? Some names you don't forget, all right? And, 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 and he sees me get out of my brother's car. And, and he shouts at me, hey, Maltemeyer, where you been? It's about time you got here. And what are you doing with those golf clubs? Get over here. I've got work for you to do. And I follow him. 
I do what he says. I, I put my clubs away, and I follow him to where he's taking me, back to that caterpillar and, and back to that gravel truck and back to the same abuse that I experienced 44 years ago. Now, if this happened and I did this, what do you think my brother would say to me? Yeah, he'd say, Steve, what are you doing? You don't work for this guy anymore. You, you don't have to do that. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying sin's not your boss anymore. It's not your master. It's not in charge. You don't have to live in its bondage. You're free. You're, you're totally free to live the life that's yours in Christ. So many times as I think and have conversations with someone who's struggling with this issue, I, I would say, you know what? God's got a sweet spot for you. And it's a spot where you, you, can, you can live in the absolute freedom that God has for you. You can have the perfect freedom that's yours in Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And so Paul writes this beginning in, in verse 11. It's really the, the first command or the first instruction that's given to us in this book. And it, it's applying this truth to our life. And Paul said, verse 11, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He said, that's your identity. You're alive in Christ. He said, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body uh, to sin as, as instruments of wickedness, but instead, rather your Offer yourselves to God as those who, who've been brought from death to life and, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but you're under grace. It's, Paul's saying, say this to yourself, he's, he's telling us. This is my identity. This is who I am in Christ. I'm... I'm free of sin's control. I'm, I'm done with sin. I, I'm not, I will not obey its evil desires. But there's more. Not only are we united with Christ in his death so that we can be done with sin, we're, we're united with Christ in his resurrection so that we can be done with death. And so Paul writes in verse 8, verse 9, he said, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Paul's saying Christ died once and he'll never die again. And the same is true for every one of us who trusts in Christ's death for our sin. This is our future. The, the power of God that raised Jesus from death to life will do the same for us. And, and death will never touch our lives again. See, friend, the moment, the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, there, there's an undeniable future for you with Christ. This is your identity. This is who you are. You're eternal because you're united to the eternal Son of God. So, what does this mean for you and me each day of our, of our life? What does it mean today and 
and tomorrow and the day after and the day after that? That's a $60,000 question, isn't it? Well, I discovered this in Matthew chapter 19 as I was working on this sermon and where Jesus made this amazing statement about eternity, really answers the question. And so in verse 28, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he, sa he says a lot in these verses. I'm just going to focus on one thing, but I'll read all the verses. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. If we know of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's talking to the disciples there. And then to all of us, he said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. A lot in those verses. I want to focus on one thing. The very beginning, Jesus said this. He said, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. He's saying that there's a single point toward which all of history is moving. When everything will become new and, and whole and perfect, exactly as God plans it to be. We read that, we hear him say that, we ask ourselves the question, well, what power is life-giving enough to do that kind of a thing? And the answer that Jesus Christ gives us is, is that it's the power of the risen Christ on his, on his eternal glorious throne. I mean, you hear that, you read that, and it's, it's absolutely amazing. But here, here's what's every bit as amazing. This word renewal shows up one more time in the Bible. I just love discovering this. In a small book at the end of the New Testament, the book of Titus in the third chapter, and, and, and Paul, is, Paul is writing about our personal salvation, and, and he makes this statement. He said, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's, that's like a summary of the first five chapters of Romans. And then he said this, he saved us to the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The word rebirth that Paul uses there is the same word that Jesus used to describe the transformation that he's going to bring to the entire universe. And so Paul's saying that the minute you trust in Christ as your Savior, the, the power of the eternal Son of God himself, the, the absolute, the ultimate life-giving power that's going to regenerate the entire universe comes into your life and begins to transform you now. Do you know what this means? When you come to Christ, when anyone comes to Christ, 
very often we, we come with, with, with unbelievably small ambitions. We, we, we want a little reorientation. We, we want a little pickup to our life. But you know what? There's a lot more to it than that. And I love, I just love how C.S. Lewis described it in this passage out of mere Christianity. Long quote here, but it's just worth every, every word. L- listen to this and have it on PowerPoint. He, he said, imagine yourself as a house. And God comes in to rebuild it. And, and at first you can't understand what he's doing. You can't understand what he's doing. He, getting the drains right and, and stopping the leaks on the roof and so on. You know those jobs needed doing, and, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and, and, and does not seem to make sense. What, what on earth is he up to? And the answer is that he's throwing on a new wing here, and he's putting on an extra floor here, and he's building towers, and he's making courtyards. And Lewis writes, You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. And if we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love that we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back God perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own power and delight and goodness. And the process will be long and in parts painful. But that's what we're in for. Nothing less. See, everybody, becoming a Christian means being united with Christ. If that's our identity, which it is, it it only makes sense for us to get rid of any little goals that we might have for ourselves. You know, so often I I think the way we think is where we'd say, well, do I have to do that? Or, Or do I have to stop doing that? We should be thinking, I'm so grateful for God's grace in my life. I'm so grateful that I can love God with my whole heart and and every day honor him by what I think and by what I say and by what I do. You see, anticipate that you will not be able to anticipate the magnitude of the changes that when they begin to come, you'll be so grateful. So grateful because you have the greatest privilege any person could have to live to the glory of God. This is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. Don't sell yourself short, Paul says. Max out God's potential for your life. In these next few minutes, we're going to share communion together. And I want to put up in front of us a verse from the sixth chapter that really sums it all up. And it's about Jesus Christ and us being united with Christ. It's also true for us. And here's the statement. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
Just think about that. Just ponder that statement. And I'm going to ask our hosts if they'll come forward and, and, uh, and distribute the bread and the cup. And, and then we'll, we'll share in this together. And if you're, if you're a guest with us this morning, we want you to know that this is, this is uh, our, our communion is for everybody who trusts and believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And, and, and when, you, when you receive that, when the tray is passed, you want to reach down and grab two cups that are together. And uh, they have both the bread and, and uh, the juice for us, okay? <laughs>